Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I am Jen White. I am here with Ellen Trackman, my amazing sister. Um, Ellen, do you have any fun or exciting travel plans coming up? Ooh, I do. Very soon I'm going to a baby shower where I'm going to see our cousins. That should be really exciting. I'm shocked Uh by those travel plans. I do not also have corresponding exact same travel plans. Yeah. We live across the country from each other, so this is exciting to see each other in person. Right. So Um, we're like meeting in the middle, basically. (laughs) Right. You have even more exciting travel plans. What are yours? Uh, yeah, in a couple of weeks, I am taking my kiddo and we are going to London for a little bit. Um, since awesome. we used to live there and they were very excited and I got an insane, amazing deal as long as we didn't travel during what is essentially like a spring break, you know, like time frame. So they're like international travel at weird off times. Yes, please. So are um, you yeah. going to see the playground they named after you? It is on my agenda, and I've already talked to somebody at the school, and she said that she can get us in. The problem is, like, if we can make it there during school hours is going to be oh. the big thing. So, because um, it's in the school, it's locked behind the, because it's an internal to inside the school playground. Oh. So, I I'd have to get there during school hours is all. Right. And do you want to remind people why you were so famous to have a, an actual so playground famous. in England <laughs> named after you? It's amazing. Um, well, uh, anybody who knows me well knows that if you dare me that I can't do something, then I say, not only will I do it, I'll do it twice as well as you think that I can't oh. do it. I dare you um, to take me to London too. Is that, is it Yes, <laughs> in the future, maybe not this next oh. trip, but, um, so I took over the PTA of a British PTA for British school, which was like a total culture shock as it was as an American. And it was little tiny PTA and they were like, yeah, we hope maybe in like 10 years we can have a playground, you know, it'll never happen anytime soon. And literally the kids were just playing on like out in a cement parking lot. Like that's all they had. And they had like stuff painted on the lot and that there was no playground equipment, no anything. And had this giant, huge property and these huge fields. And I was like, well, let's make it happen. And so not only in the two years that I was the PTA chair, did I raise enough money for one playground, they're split into two sections of the school. They have the lower and the younger kids and the upper school and the bigger kids. And I raised enough that we could have two playgrounds installed. So there are enough for both areas for the kids to play. It was such an amazing and quite honestly empowering experience to be able to do that and to like overcome cultural barriers and I made so many incredible incredible friends so that's part of when we go back we're actually gonna go see a ton of those people from there so um, yeah so amazing travel get to be a world traveler yet again but that ties in a little bit right to this right well you were a trailblazer for this playground and the school and here we have a big trailblazer as well so this is a great interview both on a worldwide perspective as well as trailblazers yes so excited welcome diana thomas the podcast thank you so much for joining us Diana is from the World Egg and Sperm Bank, the founder and CEO. But before we get into all of that, we'd love to hear Diana to tell us a little bit about yourself and to hear your background in this world. Oh, great. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm I'm very excited to talk to everybody. Uh, basically, I really, to go into it, I just started uh, at the age of 25. I couldn't have children, so I went through 25 years of uh, 20 years of infertility treatments in two different countries, Canada and oh, the wow. U.S. <laughs> oh, wow. That, I feel like that deserves a, a longer story. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> and how, I'm, I'm curious how that compared. Like, was the U.S. a very different treatment than Canada? Yeah, I'm telling you, buckle in, because I have a long and winding road. But <laughs> We're ready. Let's go. <laughs> but, you know, the end of my story is I ended up with three beautiful boys with two different egg donors over 20 years of infertility treatments. So, call me stubborn or persistent, but I certainly um, knew what I wanted. Um, But I did start at age 25. uh, I was unable to conceive, and I entered my first infertility clinic in Canada. Um, It was the mid-1980s. Yeah. And uh, when I began, so egg donation did not even exist as an option. So uh, I went through 15 years of IUIs, 
Clomid, laparoscopies, all kinds of test results, three IVFs with my own eggs, and ended up with a lot of debt and basically an empty nest. <laughs> so yeah. it was it was very, um, you know, I guess what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is the phrase, but... Then you should um, be very strong. Right? <laughs> and certainly that. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and the only diagnosis was, you know, unexplained infertility. Um, and in those course. days, I mean, people don't understand how, how I basically, my entire 20 year journey um, mirrors the whole technological growth and cultural acceptance of IVF in the U.S. Wow. And particularly egg donation. And as I say, nobody even knew what it was when I started in treatment. Um, not to make myself sound 90 years old, but it's amazing how quickly the whole industry has evolved um, in 40 years. But, um, you know, I, I think that um, I was basically told that, uh, that age 40, that I couldn't have a child unless I used an egg donor. So So at that that point, they gave you the idea, even though it wasn't commonly used. So there was, how did that, that conversation go? Well, and this was 15 years later after I started. So I was 25 when I started and nobody brought it up then. Um, You know, we were doing, and we were doing my egg retrievals without anesthesia. The stimulation Medicaid was, medication was Perganol, which is urinary product from postmenopausal nuns. Um, (laughs) yeah, didn't you know that? No. Yeah. Perganol was developed in Italy with, um, menopausal, postmenopausal nuns. Um, (laughs) so my, my knowledge of this industry is, is, is far, reaches far back, but (laughs) you know, I, so I was 15 years later and then somebody finally said to me, I decided, okay, I got to go back and try this again. And um, I was 40 and she said I had to find an egg donor. And I said, well, what's that? And she said, well, I I don't really know. I don't really know how to do it. I don't know how you go about it. I just know that there's something out there called egg donation. So (laughs) I basically did all the reading I could. and found out basically there were two clinics in the U.S. that were even using egg donors. and there was one agency that lasted for not very long in California. I think it was called Options, in fact. Mm-hmm. And they, they weren't around very long, and they were way out of my budget anyway at the time because I'd been spending all of my money for 15 years sure. on everything right. else. So, <laughs> so I thought, you know, I had to kind of step back and say I had to reevaluate my financial status, my physical capability to deal with this again my emotional capability to start over with not my eggs, but somebody else's. Yeah, it, it was, right, which there was no mental health to prepare to help you through that. Right. Cause it wasn't oh, a, a thing yet. No, there weren't, there weren't even any guidelines with ASRM. I mean, most of the guidelines that are in ASRM are the ones I've developed and been using for a decade. Um, right. So it, there was nothing. And I went to adoption literature Um you know, to kind of investigate what that would mean. It was the closest I could find. And um, basically, I had about a 12% chance of getting pregnant with donor eggs in 1990. Wow. So it's, uh, <laughs> it, it was a risk, yes. With it being so unknown, so uncommon, how did you even start kind of figuring out that conversation with someone in your life or finding someone and trying to explain what the question you were even asking of them was? You know, a lot of it was conversational because I actually, I only interviewed, I met with six women. I put an ad out in the ASU, the Arizona State University paper. Oh, wow. Okay. And oh, wow. Okay. There was no, uh, there was no other way to locate an egg donor. My sister was six years older than I was, so that wasn't going to work. Um, and I had six people answer the ad and I just sat down with them and said, look, this is what's going on. And um, I'm the person this your egg would go to and I would like to have an open relationship and I would like to tell you everything I know about this process and um, you, set you up to talk to the doctor directly. There weren't, as I say, there were no guidelines. So this was a, a really a, a trust, faith built relationship with this donor. Um, and there were no contracts, there were no fees. I basically sat down and I, 
I developed a contract that I thought would be appropriate for her, benefit her, benefit me, and would extend to my children in terms of her willing to be open to, to meet with my kids. Yeah. Um, and at the time, you know, adoption literature was, oh, private. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell the children. But being one that kind of has walked my own path most of my life, I thought, I can't lie to my kids. I just, it's mm. just me, you know, I, I felt like I'm, I'm too transparent and they would know I wasn't telling the truth. And that would have become more profound to them than the truth itself. Yeah. I didn't want to break that bond of trust. Um, so I, I wanted this open relationship. In fact, I not only met the donor, but I met her family. Her parents oh. came over. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's nice. That's really nice. You know, and this is 1990. So, and um, were the parents supportive? Because I feel like sometimes it's the parents of donors that are like, feel, have different feelings about it. Well, you know, at that time, you have to understand, I probably located somebody that was also fairly unusual and independent in her, in her day because when I met her parents, I could see that they were also extremely open-minded, supportive people. So, you know, she came from that kind of environment. Yeah. And that was very nice. That's great. Yeah. So you put an ad, you interviewed, you found someone, you met her family, you created your own contract. Mm. How, how did it go from there? Um, you know, I, I learned a lot that I wish I had known more of at the time, because if I wasn't getting anesthetic, my donor wasn't either. Oh, right. Yeah. And I, and I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go in with her. They actually let me sit through her procedure. These were the old oh, days. Wow. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I talked them into getting an anesthesiologist because I, I didn't want to put her through what I had gone through. And, um, um, I even got to look at the, you know, eggs in the dish in the lab and then the embryos after they fertilize. So it, it's, um, it, it was just, that's what happened, you know, and, and, and we were all kind of carving a new path. I, I'm sure I was the first donor that I had brought into this doctor's office. Uh, that I brought in the first donor, I'm sorry. And um, we kind of all just worked through it together. And, you know, they, they did have a, a roster of two donors. Um, they said, you get to pick, the nurse will match you with one of these. And that's when I said, I I'm not comfortable with that. This is going to be my child. I would like to know more information. And, oh, no, you can't know anything else. Mm -hmm. And that is really why I went out to find my own egg donor, because I already felt like a parent. I already felt like I had the responsibility to this child I was creating to create um, an acceptance and openness before we even started. So how could I do that if I wasn't even told anything? So that's, that's actually why I went and got my own donor. Wow. And did you use the same donor for all three of your children? Uh, no. Um, then... Um, uh, the, the, it was, we have to backtrack a little bit. What yes. happened? What was the result from that, from that donation? <laughs> um, I, I became pregnant the first try. She had something like Yay. 18 beautiful eggs. And so my 12% chance was, wow, 12% chance. It was lucky. <laughs> wow. So, okay. And, and they had transferred two embryos and one of them was a, a disappearing twin. Okay. So. Um, the pregnancy was great. In fact, um, he just did not want to be born. He, I had to be induced. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and now he's uh, 26 years old. And he was one of the first 100 babies recorded by the CDC in the United States with donor eggs. Wow. So, you know, it was early on. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and I was open with him and it just, it didn't really matter. I mean, I, as he grew up, I would tell him things and um, uh, say, you know, you're a really lucky child. It took three people to make you instead of two. And I just kept creating positive thoughts around it. And he certainly saw the birthing video of me giving birth to him. So, <laughs> you know, he, he I was just mom and, and the genes came from somewhere else and everything was fine. So, and that was before there's all these helpful kids books, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I um, 
just did the best I could and uh, it seemed to have worked out fine. And yeah, so then, you know, I don't know if you have any more questions about that one, but I did go use another egg donor for my twins that followed so, four years later. I would say so, but you had embryos left from that, right? From that first time. So what happened there? Um, well, you have to also remember there was no ICSI. So the eggs and the sperm were combined in this mysterious um, soup to make sure that they fertilized, but there was no ICSI. So the fertilization rate was pretty low. And then, uh, okay. you know, uh, egg free uh, embryo freezing was still, it was round, but it wasn't infected. Yeah. Okay. And I think we ended up with one more transfer um, later, but I did not get pregnant from that. Okay. So yeah. that's where, why you had to go pursue a second donor. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I totally forgot about about all of that, that ICSI wasn't even around. Yeah. Did, so, <laughs> did you consider going back to the same donor? Did you have that conversation with her? I did. And, um, you know, she's just a wonderful human being. And I, um, her mother uh, actually had an aneurysm and passed away. Oh, no. after the donation and she went on you know Nicole went on and had her own three children shortly after that because she ha wasn't married yet she was 22 at the time I think and then got married after she finished her master's sure. but I just you know I didn't um it, it there was no family history of it it was a just a terrible thing that happened to her and I just couldn't I couldn't ask any more of her let's put it that way mm, I see <laughs> yeah so, so how did you go next round? Was it an ad again, or did you have a new a new strategy or same same path? Well, no. What happened is after I had given birth to my son August, um, the doctors asked me how I found my donor and could I help other patients locate donors. And basically, I just started uh, what it would it be called a what would be called an donor agency at the time. Um, so I think I'm. I was probably the second one after after options, um, and it was called X and Y Consulting. And um, I just started finding donors for other people, and two or three years went by, and I probably matched up, I uh, know, several dozen people with doctors in Arizona where I was where I reside. And um, so I actually used one of the talked to one of the donors that ha I had matched with another couple. Um, and they had a successful pregnancy. So um, she actually donated for me. Uh, and it's so interesting because at the time I was um, 43, I think. And um, she ended up not having children, not trying to have children until she was 40. And she came back to me. She said, I'm having trouble. My donor came back to me and said she was having trouble. And it just Oh, broke wow. my heart. And I said, well, let's get this taken care of. And so I sent her to the doctors that I knew at the time in San Diego. And they did a little bit of surgery and she ended up um, having two children oh, of her own. So, so oh, yay! I know, I know it was, um, but how, how fortunate I was to kind of take that full circle and help her, help her out. So, so then I, I ended up with, um, with, um, well, it ended up with triplets, uh, and oh, wow. one of them didn't survive um, at about, um, I guess, about 13 weeks, but it caused me to go into early, um, my, my cervix started to, to, uh, to dilate, so I ended up in the hospital from about week 15 to week 27 and a half, 29 and a half when I had the children. Oh my goodness. Oh. oh, and you had a little, and you had a little one at home too. Yes, yes. And, my, and there was no Netflix. What did you do? Oh, well, <laughs> I was on so much magnesium and tributylene that I couldn't see anyway. I mean, it loosened oh. the muscles in my eyes so I couldn't even focus. I couldn't even read. Oh, wow. And, and the tributylene was, um, you know, kind of gives you anxiety attacks whenever the pump would kick in. So, I basically didn't sleep the whole time and uh, oh watched helicopters landing on the roof outside the hospital. Oh, no. <laughs> and, you know, wow. I do it all over again. I was very fortunate that my mother was there and could come to the hospital every day. And 
And she'd say, how do you feel? And I'd say, oh, mom, I can't do this. I can't take it. She said, you've hit a wall. And I said, yeah. She says, well, build a new wall five feet out. I'll be back tomorrow. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Good Irish philosophy. So, I love that. I, I, I like that. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I'd love to pass on any of my mother's wisdom, who, by the way, is 94 and is, is still reading many books. So she's wonderful. Oh, my goodness. Amazing. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So um, I, I, uh, I've certainly been through um, quite a lot and I've learned quite a lot. And I've worked with thousands of women going through this um, over the past Oh gosh, it's been twenty years now since I've been doing this for other people. Well, and and so you had your babies, and then it sounds like I mean I know you say you've done this for twenty years, but we we have to backtrack on that, right? Yeah. Like, oh, the, yeah. so you did you go into doing that kind of full time, and what what happened there? I ended up transitioning from my prior career of um, archi- I used to do architectural preservation, and I would manage large architectural projects. So I, I, I when I, I read that, I was so fascinated <laughs> about that about you. I was like, we could talk about that all day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do love architecture. Yeah. So it kind of taught me the business side of things in a way, um, learning how to manage people and contract, you know, negotiations and things like that. But I'm not an attorney. I just knew enough to know what I needed to ask. But, you know, I, I sort of went through a whole journey and I know you, you talk to people all the time and I don't know how accepted it is. I mean, I'm sure it's quite acceptable in most families. Um, but when I was going through it, I was, I really learned to not talk about it to many people because I was treated like an oddity. And, um, you know, I told my children that I, I gave them a gift to not have my own family history (laughs) involved there medically, you know, my family is not the greatest, uh, shape. So, um, you know, I, I um, reached out to other women that I could trust for support through parents via egg donation. I saw you had um, uh, the representative from that on your mm-hmm. podcast recently. And I used to work with her when I, I wrote stories for them and things. But it was really helpful for me to reach out to other women to talk to through that site. Um, I learned to follow my heart, you know, that um, this was my life, not anybody else's. So taking other people's advice really wasn't very fruitful for me. I just had to shut things down and just listen to what me and my family and my children and my life was going to be and make decisions around that. But, um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, that transition, though, is so fascinating to go from architectural preservation to full-time helping others who might be looking at egg donation. Tell me a little bit about that transition and, and starting to build that. You know, as I say, it was, it was a learning process. I didn't have anybody to model after. There was no uh, system or um, paperwork or or even donor profiles, there was nothing out there. So I basically sat down and started writing everything out and figuring out as a parent who had had my children this way, what, what I would want to ask donors for somebody else. That's how I created a profile. Um, you know, I talked to people about legal issues through surrogacy that helped me determine basically, gosh, that first con- I had a contract with the donor that just said, you know, we, we agree to respect each other, that I won't contact you. If you don't, if you don't answer me, I won't reach out to you anymore that you, that's your way of saying you don't want to remain in contact. Yeah. Um, and none of those things we see now of what if there's remaining eggs or embryos, can I no. donate them further? What happens no. to them? Yeah. <laughs> it was just, I'm giving you my eggs. I don't want to be responsible for the child. And this is my child and we will respect each other as as human beings who've helped each other. I mean, it was really that simple. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. It's always simple until the attorneys get involved. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, whether I just got lucky or, or um, I just kept pushing ahead and asking a lot of questions and doing all the reading I could to, to try to get it right. And obviously everything has changed so much over the past, 
25 years that it's even hard to imagine the beginning of this, but I, I think that people still encounter the same um, personal uh, challenges and financial challenges and family issues and all those early pieces that I went through, I think still, still occur with people today. Mm-hmm. It's just and I, more expensive and, yeah. <laughs> and I don't yeah. think people, legally, people, people know all the developments. I would love to hear how things looked, you know, 15 years ago versus now and how things have developed and what has changed. And then how, I mean, the insider's look of an egg donation process. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been a journey. And I, I think that we have, um, so I really come, I came to this, um, whole, I guess you have to call it a business from the perspective of a patient for many years. And then I knew my own donor. So I went through the process with her or her appointments. I saw everything that happened to donors. And of course I came, you know, dealt with my doctor's office and knew their clinical perspective and they didn't want me to know anything. And here's a, here's, you know, we have a donor for you. You don't need to know anything and let's get started. So I really had seen it from all different sides. And I thought to myself, Hmm, this could be improved. This could be improved. Well, this can change. Well, this has to change. (laughs) So I just started moving in that direction and um, transitioned from my full-time career to this career full-time. And um, after doing a a fresh donor agency all across the U.S. and flying donors, you know, from L.A. to Rhode Island for a patient that was from New York and coordinating all those cycles. So I did that quite a long time until um, I was approached by two physicians who were working in early egg freezing. And at that time, it was slow freeze uh, process, which you probably I don't know, nobody talks about it anymore, but mm-hmm. that that was before vitrification. So, I said, do you mind talking, because people don't talk about it anymore, do you mind like just obviously high level, you know, version kind of explain so that people understand the difference? Because I, I mean, technology did change in light years with vitrification. Mm-hmm. It was the earliest um, form of egg freezing. And it was, of course, um, uh, it was created by the doctor that um, joined the first egg bank with me, Dr. Jeffrey Bolt. And he worked with another doctor who ended up developing the sage media for the first um, egg freezing media. So um, it's it's really, a, it's a slow freeze. I can't really go through the whole process, but it's not the fast freeze like you dump an egg right. quickly into a media and it's flash frozen. This was slow freeze. And the, and the pregnancy rate from that was about 30%. So it wasn't nearly as effective as vitrification, but that's all anyone could do at the time right um and we didn't really do very many uh very many cycles with that early process because i did start the first egg bank um with this process in 2004 so we were the first egg bank in the u.s and um we we worked with that process um until about 2009 when we moved to vitrification which is fast freeze much higher pregnancy rate and then opening that that um, egg bank with vitrification, um, the World Egg Bank, figuring out too, going through that growth curve with the people that were getting those first eggs because embryologists just assumed that you know warming an egg was the same as warming an embryo, and it's an entirely different and um, much more delicate process. So we had to end up doing a lot of training in labs so that we could create success on their end, help them create success because we didn't want the patient to suffer, you know, with a new, with a new technology. Right. So yeah. we, we, um, would, we would fly all over when somebody um, obtained our eggs at a clinic in Toronto, we flew there and we, we walked through the thought process with them. And, um, then, then by then ICSI was around. So fertilization was pretty pretty good. So mm-hmm. then we started seeing pregnancy rates more 40% and then 50%. And I would say, really, um, an average pregnancy rate across the board with all clinics involved that we work with is probably about 55%. 
At this point, it's 55%. Yeah, and um, that's because we ship eggs all around the world, and we might ship them to a clinic that only does one donor cycle a year, so their pregnancy rates are 30%, and then we send them to high-level clinics where they do 100 a year, and their pregnancy rate is 62%. Hmm. So that's just an average. So it's not our pregnancy rate. It's an average of the results of all the clinics that use our eggs. Sure, sure. Um, and I think for those who might be thinking about egg donation or looking at a bank, I would love for you to tell more to those who don't know much about this process, kind of how it works. How do you find donors? What kind of information do recipients receive? What kind of information do the donors receive? Can you tell us more about those? Well, yeah, that's um, that's a big topic, but I think I'll try to start <laughs> high level, which is basically there's... There are actually three kinds of, or three sources or ways to obtain um, donor eggs or sperm. And one of them is through a network, an egg bank that has a network of clinics. So they have retrieval centers, dozens around the world or or around the U.S. that retrieve eggs for them. And then they amalgamate information about those donors on their website. So it looks like one egg bank, but it's actually an amalgamation of many, many different retrieval locations on on one website. Um, Then you have um, imported eggs, and um, that's still, I really can't tell you all about, I'll I'll talk about that in a minute, but then there's imported eggs, but then there's, uh, our clinic is the only, um, the only egg bank that does everything in-house at one, one location, so all of our 25 staff people are the same people who recruit the donors, who screen the donors, who consent the donors, who send them through all of their screening, genetic, lab, psychological. Um, and we, do, we have the same doctors who do the stimulation. We have uh, two REIs. We have um, nurse practitioners and nurses. So the donor comes, every donor that we have on our website walks through our door and we know them. And we do all of, their, all of the treatments on, on their, um, to retrieve their eggs. And um, we um, freeze them in our lab and we ship them directly from our lab to the clinic that's receiving the eggs for the patient. So are most of your donors local or do you have donors flying in from all across the country? Yeah, we we do both, but we we, uh, focus, the majority of our donors are local. Uh, We have uh, the third largest university campus in the country um, in Arizona, but we also I don't like people to think that all of our donors are students because I'd say only about half of them are. The other half are mothers, family members. They're not students. So it's just people who hear about it through family, through, um, we, we have a quite an extensive educational component because that's how we outreach to, um, attract people interested in donating their eggs. Um, so we, um, we do, and we also, because we ship worldwide, we actually follow at least 21 pieces of international legislation specifically for egg donors. And the most extensive of which is in Australia. There's 21 pieces of legislation just in Australia because each state has different legislation. And yeah. so all of, and we're audited by these people. This is not, um, we, there, we are totally transparent. We've had people come from Australia and walk through our whole systems to make sure our donors are open identity, they're altruistic, yeah. and they're properly cared for. So we have eyes on us, and we are happy to do so. Interesting. Um, so is that for all donors, that they're all, they're all open and they're all altruistic, so that no one's compensated, or is it just for some? We, we probably have about 5% of our donors who, who don't want to be open identity and um, are just just receive a flat fee, but those are just a few places in the U.S. I'm not even sure we have that many anymore because our whole goal was to just be entirely open identity, and we've been doing that since 2012. Wow. So all of these new discussions about anonymity is just old news to us. We we went over that a long time ago. We, we're we're done with anonymous. We don't we just don't do it, and we can't do it in most of the countries we ship to. So, um, you know, yeah, I I wanted to standardize it across across the board. So, 
Yes, they all come here and they are all compensated on uh, reimbursement and, for and expenses. I, I, my understanding is that there's some countries that are actually the opposite, that they require anonymous donation. And I assume you just don't work with those countries or ship to those countries. Is that is that right? Yeah. And, you know, this is kind of part of the interesting part about these imported eggs is they're retrieved from countries like Spain where they're required to be anonymous. So how is it when they cross the border, all of a sudden they're not anonymous? Yeah. I, I, I mean, <laughs> it's true, though, that you're, you're, you know, that's a sophisticated question and, and comment that you made because the laws are not understood by people um, in in the U.S. and make a lot of assumptions about what's going on. Um, I, I am I am not I am not interested in the profiteering and the commercialization and why these why these donors have to come from third world economies. I don't have trouble recruiting donors in the United States. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't understand, but I think the people who are looking for donors really need to just ask the right questions. And um, we have a whole list of them. I'd be happy to share with you on your website or however you'd like to. Yeah. I feel like the more research, the better. We would love to list um, yeah. the questions that people should ask. So just back, back to that question. So do you not ship to like Spain or Israel, a country that requires anonymity, or do you like those 5% that are anonymous are eligible for those rare countries? Um, we, we don't ship into Spain or Israel. They have plenty of donors. I mean, they, you know, I mean, when we say Spain too, you know, you have to be really careful now because Cypriotic eggs, um, Ukrainian eggs, Russian eggs, and Argentinian eggs, but the East European ones are all going through Spain. So they're getting, being taken out of war-torn countries with buildings blown up without paperwork left on donors and they're calling them uh, open identity. And they're being shipped you know, to Bratislava and then they go to Spain and then somebody buys them in the UK thinking they're getting eggs from Spain, but then that's not where they're from. Um, it's it's there's so much subterfuge going on that I just if people can make a choice about it, but they should be aware of it. They should be able to make a choice by having all the smoke and mirrors um, that's practiced behind importing eggs removed. It should just yeah. not be there. People should be able to know the source of their eggs. Do you want to go into like at least a couple of those questions to ask? Because I mean, when you're a recipient or a hopeful parent. It's hard to, you know, you trust what you're being told and it's hard to kind of see behind what's what's going on. Very hard. It's it's very disturbing to me. I, I really feel for people because, you know, it's hard enough to go through IVF and to try to educate yourself on all these procedures and processes and medications, but then to have to look at human trafficking issues. <laughs> I mean, it's it's crazy. It should not have to be that way. But Basically, it's really asking what the source of the eggs are, where they were retrieved, how, how, um, who is who is verifying the information that's coming from those countries about these donors. How do you ask a, ask a clinic how they would access the quality control if the eggs are going in and out of, um, you know, war torn countries to other countries to other countries to an egg bank in the U.S. to another egg bank and then to your clinic. It, it You know, it, these things are, are one cell. It's a piece of glass and you don't just jostle them around the world. So I think you, asking the source and asking where they've traveled to. And you mentioned verification. So, you know, an egg donor, a sperm donor comes in, they're asked a lot of questions and they present information. And there's been some, you know, me being the lawyer, right? There's been some really interesting cases, especially with sperm donors, where they weren't truthful. And then later information comes out. So for podcast listeners, I highly recommend the podcast on donor 9623, this donor that was very, very popular as, you know, having a really high IQ and speaking five languages and being a neuroscience PhD. And it turned out most of, like he was a college dropout and a felon had schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, you know, it's hard to see like how much you trust a donor, how much you can really dig into their background. I would love to hear your thoughts on that kind of situation and how much you are able to verify when a donor presents information about themselves. 
Well, I think there's two pockets of information to verify, and you've hit on one that I wasn't referring to, but I will talk about that. But um, I was talking about verifying the age of the donor, how many times she'd been retrieved, how many families have her eggs already gone to, is she being hyperstimulated, is she being paid, is she being coerced? Who's verifying all of that information? I'm thinking about the donor's health and safety and what what information, where are her labs being done? How accurate are those labs? Are they, um, you know, I know that, that some countries are doing, well, they're calling them FDA labs, um, but what about all the genetic labs? And what are they accepting in terms of, um, you know, uh, genetic um, um, recessive traits when they accept a donor? Yeah. And that's, that's a whole side of it that should be coming from a doctor's office retrieving the eggs. And if doctors in Washington, D.C. are saying, oh, well, I know so-and-so in Spain, and he's a good doctor, and he told me that those eggs came from, you know, Russia, and he says he, he likes the guy in Russia, so that he thinks that the information is accurate. That's not verification. You know, that's, that's word of mouth. And who... And if they're making uh, $10,000 off of each cohort of egg, I, I really doubt that it could be 100% legitimate because there's a lot of motivation there to not tell the truth. That's, um, that's the donors are not getting paid hardly anything, if at all. Um, yeah. And again, I always go back to why do we have to go to third world countries? It just, that's the first question. <laughs> But then, you know, for donors, when we have donors, they all come through our door. Um, we have to do reimbursements so we know where they work. We contact their employers. We, we um, get copies of um, all of their, their passport, their driver's license. You know, we have like a, a verification program just because, we, you know, we, we don't ask uh, donors for, you know, 20 years of medical history. I, I couldn't get it on, on my own medical history, I'm not sure any of us could really collect that kind of level of information. And I know the law in Colorado is pretty thorough about all of that. Um, but I think that's going to be very difficult to be able to obtain that information for anyone. And it's not out of trying to conceal it. It's just medical system. Um, yeah, I mean, the law in Colorado is, it'll be, be very interesting to see how it evolves, but it doesn't require a certain level of um, accessing medical information, but it requires limiting the number of families that can use the same donor and requiring openness. And it sounds like some of the things you probably do anyway, but now putting a regulatory um, spin on it. Yeah, no, we, we have, have to track family limits and we have been since 2010. Um, we, because of Australia, we, um, we actually had developed our own custom database. So we know uh, when donors are reaching that 10 family limit and we don't ship out any more eggs until we get outcome reports back to know if they're really 10 or not. And can I ask a really obtuse question and I apologize and please tell me if the, you do have a way to do this. How do you know if somebody didn't tell you they went somewhere else? Well, nobody really knows any of that for sure. We don't. Okay. I, I, you know, I'm not going to, I just know that we get to know our donors and, um, you know, when they go through a psyche valve and they're and they're talked to by a psychologist, by the doctor, by us, um, by the genetic counselor, and then we sit down and compare notes. If something isn't right, somebody sees it. And to say that something couldn't slip through or we didn't know, it's a possibility, you know, but it's certainly more than anyone would know of a new partner they just met and had a child with. It, it's it's all it's all we can really get. Yeah, and I, I was I, more, and I would say that was not towards your program in any way, shape, or form. It was more kind of thinking of the you know donors who are like, I've hit the limit. I'm gonna you know skip and go somewhere else, and mm -hmm. and the concerns, the the bigger picture concern. Again, that's not about you specifically. Yeah. So no, no, no. And I get that, and I think that um, it's a tough question because I think that it would in Australia, it's not a worry of mine, or or in the UK because the federal governments track the uh, donor the donors' yeah. names and uh, social security numbers, et cetera. Hmm. So, um, but, you know, the funny, funny things happen when donors do that. 
what, what, what I've seen is all of a sudden we'll get a fax from another agency or a clinic saying, can you give me all your donor records on so-and-so? And I'll say, well, no. <laughs> and that, but it clues me in that she's gone somewhere else. So yeah, we just right. give them a call and say, hey, you know, are you aware she's had, you know, five donations with us? So I, I, we, we try to be ethical and share information when it's going to affect a, a, a couple. Um, but I don't I never get calls from anybody else telling me that my donor's been somewhere else. And maybe she has, but I don't get those same courtesy calls. <laughs> But, you know, it can happen. They can they can do that. But I don't. And, you know, I think you, it's probably way more common, of course, for sperm donors than egg donors, uh, because six six cycles is, is um, you know, it's not easy. So who goes through more than that? Not very many donors. There, there probably are professional donors that travel around. But I, I don't know. I haven't I haven't seen any or come across them. Personally, and since we've done 30,000 donors in 25 years, I think I probably would have had a lot of experience with that if it was common. Yeah, hopefully it's not common. Although Jen was uh, did a, a brief interview on a CNN um, mm-hmm. documentary, and they definitely um, separately interviewed a woman. And I, I forget how many retrievals she'd been through. Jen, do you remember? I, it was like, I feel like it was, and I don't want to, I don't want to guess, but I it feel was like definitely it was definitely it was, I feel like it was something like nine or something like that. And even it was obviously admitted that the doctor doing one of the retrievals definitely knew because they were like, oh, this will be your last one, this number, whatever. And she said it on the air and she's like, maybe you should consider surrogacy instead. You know, like that. It was like, oh. Yeah. You know, I saw that report too. And I thought, you know, how unfortunate to scare the public like that because that's so uncommon. It's just really, you know, but it's sensationalism. Yeah. That's my opinion. I, I saw that program. I, I wasn't really happy with the way they presented yeah, surrogacy or donation. Like the or, the ultimate know, extreme. It's not the norm and make people think that that's common. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So for those who are, you know, thinking about using egg donor, thinking about being an egg donation, but really wanting the best for the future children and wanting to do it ethically, what are like your top tips to, to recommend to look for the process and the partners of doing it that the way that is most, most ethical? Um, uh, I'm sorry, the most, uh, the top tips for picking for a donor? Eth- ethical donation. Yeah. Either oh. way, I guess being a donor, picking a donor. You know, again, I think it is, um, it's such an individual thing. I see people most, you know, 90% of the people we work with are just looking for somebody that that will fit into their family profile and that they somehow feel a little connected to. Um, you know, I, I just like my donor spirit. I didn't really care how tall she was or what her eye color was. Mm-hmm. I think people I look that. for all different things. Um, so I think it's once a donor, at least, you know, I can only speak from our program, you know, knowing that the donor's been properly screened and vetted and consented and cared for and treated well, I, I mean, are always important things. How to do that with when you can't really speak to the person doing retrieval is, is very difficult to do because the either the donor's in another country or the retrieval centers are all over, you know, the U.S. So it's much more difficult to get to um, to get to the person that you feel could really answer these questions. I, I, I fully believe, you know, that um, networked uh, retrieval centers are, are um, doing things well. They're, you know, they're following the ASRM guidelines and they're doing things well. So I would suspect that any U.S. donor is, is probably quite well screened. But no, I don't deal with them. Uh, maybe the range of people you do. So maybe that doesn't seem true to you, but it does to me. No, no, that's, that's helpful. Um, anything else you want to share with our audience before we, we wrap up? Um, you know, I think I just would like to make one statement about known donation or known donors having 
had such positive experiences myself. But I think that yeah. if people understand, I know a lot of people are would like to have an anonymous donor because there there are fears around around what would happen if the child wanted to know her or whatever. But I think selecting a known donor it doesn't require, and I don't know about the Cal uh, the uh, Colorado law, but across the rest of the states, it doesn't require that you have to tell your child they're from a donor. So if somebody selects a known donor, they can be anonymous until they choose to tell their child. But at least that donor is going to be there for that child 15 years later, if they should change their mind. If you have an anonymous donor from the beginning, you've lost that opportunity forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I will say the Colorado law requires that the donor agree that their information can be released to the child at 18 when mm-hmm. the donor conceived person is 18. But you're right. It, so a law like that absolutely does not require the recipients, the parents to disclose but at least they have that ability and the child has the ability to obtain that information later. Right. And I, you know, if you ask yourself, why, why would I, what reason would I have to not tell my child? Yeah. You know, I, I couldn't come up with an answer for that. Right. Every once in a while I would say there's a cultural reason for people yes. to not, but, but those are definitely fewer and further between. Yeah, no, that's true. I know that there are families who don't, you know, are very against it. I think more and more open to it now, mm-hmm. but certainly there can be cultural reasons for that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's such an important message. And we're really seeing donor conceived people, their voices starting to get amplified more and really express how important it is to them to know their history, to know their background, have access to medical information that's important to them. So we really are seeing that that voice being heard and factor into donations more. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful for it because I know I had a medical issue with my child at age eight. And if I couldn't have reached out to my donor to talk to her, I, I think it would have been much more difficult. So yeah, it can happen way before the age of 18. <laughs> right. Makes <laughs> sense. Well, we so appreciate you coming on and telling about your very personal, um, intimate story of the creation of your family and how it's led you to try to, to work to help others. Um, so inspirational and meaningful. We, we really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I just um, hope that I can help people listening if they're not alone. That's our theme. You're not alone. That's our theme, that's, always. That's why exactly. we do this. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Diana, for sharing your story and giving so much great information, especially for those who might be looking into egg donation. So helpful, so informative. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you, of course, we'll keep it short and sweet since I talked so much on the front end this time to um, everyone out there. Thank you for leaving us reviews on iTunes, for reaching out to us, for calling us on our hotline at 303-997-1903. But most of all, thank you to our team, to Amanda, to Tyler, to Melissa for being there with us, for, you know, tolerating us through all of this. <laughs> but a huge thank you, of course, to all of you who are with us every week. We really appreciate you.